Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 15, entitled Networking for the Young Artist. Today, I will be discussing the importance of proper and strategic networking for your young artist. I am positive that this is one of our most important topics yet, as the classical music industry is becoming more and more selective. Never before have I seen so much talent in our youth and from very early ages. Knowing how to network when they are adults could seriously make or break them as professional musicians. And as parents, we will have many opportunities to help them learn these valuable lessons while they are still training. As usual, I'm going to give you real talk from all the perspectives, student, teacher, adjudicator, and parent. It is my belief that all of us need to communicate more openly about how to engage in healthy communication and build networking skills for these talented youth. They will need help at all stages of their development, and if we are mindful of our actions, we will be modeling good habits for them to employ in the future. There will be countless opportunities to do this, and believe me, even when it seems like they're not really paying attention, I think they're silently taking notes. A solid career in music depends on both smart and consistently sincere networking. We will talk about this today in detail and give examples of ways we can communicate effectively with all of the major entities you're in contact with as the parents of a young artist. From competition administrators, arts organizations, pre-college or music school directors, youth orchestra directors, there are lots of people you will be communicating with on a regular basis. And here's the thing. The music world is small, so doing things right works for you in the end, because chances are most of these entities know each other. So let's get started. The first thing I want to talk about is what I consider to be the ideal chain of communication when networking and my experience with it dealing with studio parents. Whether we're dealing with issues over competition applications or communicating with arts organizations or pre-colleges about concerns or questions, what should be our first point of contact as parents? In my opinion, for all of these issues, your first point of contact, if not just to check in about a few things, should always be your teacher. Here's the most obvious reason why. Even if you have multiple children in the arts, chances are you've only been doing this a fraction of the time of your teacher. They have probably been at this for decades, and not only does this mean they have more experience networking in general in the arts, But also, and perhaps more importantly, they have likely had personal experiences with many of these administrators you are writing. They know the ins and outs of the requirements of the competitions and the best strategy for your kid to be considered for a masterclass or performance opportunity. They've dealt with the youth orchestras about auditions and seating and absences, and they have built appreciative alliances with them, Basically, they've paved the way for others before you and have gathered information along the way that is incredibly valuable for you to have before you press send on any emails. And here's the real talk. They have also, unfortunately, been witness to other parents going at it alone and messing it up. 
So they've seen the consequences of that. It isn't rocket science, far from it, but knowing the personalities of the players involved and the histories of the organizations can allow you to communicate more clearly and create a successful flow of communication that sits really well with everyone. This reflects well on you, your studio, other common entities when organizations are connected, and of course, ultimately, your child. And make no mistake, these interactions will definitely influence future opportunities, and it's in fact healthy, and I think a great motivator for you to be aware of this. I know that that's hard to hear, but this may in fact be your first experience in a reality that any professional musician knows all too well. We are all infinitely replaceable. With so much talent at every institution these days, there is surely someone who can provide the same thing as your child in a masterclass scenario. And while every child is unique, if we forget about this one fact, it allows for us to be complacent in how we communicate with key players that can really influence a child's success in the long run. So you absolutely want background information or all of the information you can gather from your teacher for any of these interactions. Keep in mind, once you have a positive set of communications with one person, it could lead to others. And yes, the opposite can also be true. If you have a great set of communications with one entity, this can easily trace its way back to your teacher, your pre-college director, or a collaborative pianist. The possibilities are endless. Parents develop reputations too, and they are also linked to the child. If you have an awkward couple of exchanges with someone just because you are unaware of their way of doing things or new at this, it may not just annoy them about you and your child, but also those who are affiliated with you. This can start a bit of a snowball effect. It's easy to think, oh, no harm, no foul, or geez, I'm doing the best I can. But often these exchanges are revealed to other important people in your child's education, so it is really worth proceeding thoughtfully. For example, as a teacher, I might be engaging in conversation with the head of an arts organization advocating for another student, and when I mention your kid's name as a possibility for something else later in the year, the whole story will spew out. These things happen organically in conversations. This will then force me into a conversation where I need to make amends and over-advocate. Meanwhile, I'll be wondering, why didn't they ask me for help with this? Usually, the child in question is so talented, and whatever gaffe was made in communication could have been prevented really easily. Let's talk about masterclass opportunities or special event performances and how we can network. When we are dealing with opportunities for things like special events or masterclasses, I advise parents to keep in mind that it isn't the early bird that gets the worm. It's often the talented and easygoing one. Many arts organizations are fully staffed, but some are run by volunteers, and if you've been writing them repeatedly when you could have just asked pertinent questions or received clarification from your teacher, you could be doing more damage than good. It isn't that they are unwilling to answer emails or deal with parents. They do it all the time, and they enjoy it. 
But in my experience, the quicker and the cleaner the exchange, the better the outcome will be. They have a thousand events going on to manage. Just like anything else, over-communicating can be irksome to people because it gives them more to do. They will feel the need to try and respond to each question and every email because this is their job to respond to inquiries. So go first to your teacher and do a pre-game conversation at the very least so you can get your ducks in order. Think of this as allowing your teacher to team up with you in order to strategize for your child's best chance at gaining this desired opportunity. Sometimes I think it helps to understand more about the administrator's perspective and how they select students. In my experience, their main priority is to create an educational event that everyone can benefit from. That includes the audience. To do this, they know that they need an event to run well and for there to be as few hiccups as possible. And yes, they need really talented kids. But as I said in the beginning of the episode, there are many, possibly more than I have ever seen before. If it is a masterclass, they might also have the requests of the masterclass guest artist themselves to consider. And of course, there is no way for you to know about that. But if this is a repeat masterclass artist, your teacher will have seen who has been featured in their classes before, and they may have a good idea of whether your child could be seriously considered, and even what piece might appeal to them more. I have run masterclasses and selected students for many years, and when I do so, it is standard for me to ask the guest artist, what is your preference for level and age? Do you have any suggestions for who you would like to work with? I ask this because some performing artists have more experience teaching at a certain level. They may only be interested in working with a certain age group, too. If they are appearing in concert in town that weekend already, they may show a preference toward a student who is asking to play that same work because they have very strong feelings about that piece that they'd like to share with the audience. Masterclasses are educational for everyone involved. They are a live performance lesson, so administrators are looking for fluid learners who are talented and ready to perform. They need to fit the profile suggested by the performing artist, and the piece they're playing needs to be a good fit for the rest of the program so that they don't run over time. They can't have four students playing 20-minute pieces. And for this reason, sometimes I think it helps to have a few pieces to offer if you're truly interested. When you approach your teacher about these things, they might, depending on the situation, offer to take over on your behalf to ensure a good communication. If they offer, take them up on it. They will get farther than you can. And don't worry, you will have plenty of chances to hone your networking skills later. Here's a side note of some real talk from years of teaching. I have noticed that some parents actually really like taking the lead in communications. My feeling is they're so proud of their children's achievements that they want to do this legwork almost as a point of pride. But there are a lot of times where this could lead to a misstep. Some personalities are harder to communicate with others, and you might not know that going in. Maybe your teacher has a relationship with this organization or a tie to the guest artist presenting the class. 
you don't want to give up these advantages because you forget to talk to them first. How should we respond as parents if the answer that we receive back is a no? If for whatever reason your child is not chosen for an opportunity, try and keep in mind that as I stated before, the person selecting players has many factors to consider when making these choices. You might see someone else being selected to perform who you perceive as being not as fine a player as your child. And that doesn't mean that you're wrong. It could just mean that that child or what they selected to play ticked more of the boxes necessary for this particular opportunity. When we take things personally, we really hold our child's progress back. Most things are not personal when it comes to selections for masterclasses. In my studio, we used to have several masterclasses a year, and I was the one who was choosing the students who would present. I have frequently had very upset parents when children were not selected, but in fact, I was attempting to serve them. Here's how. Some performing artists serve on major juries and auditions, and they remember every detail about your kid's performances. If I feel your kid is in the midst of a technical adjustment or isn't currently playing a piece that shows their unique value as a young musician, I might pass on them performing this time and try again later. Many teachers I know feel the same way. Presenting a child too early to someone with a lot of influence is a risky venture. They will remember them later in a larger circumstance, and I have seen this happen countless times. It is hard to unring a bell. So if they're presented too early and have problems with projection or their rhythm seems slightly unstable that day, that same performer will remember this later and judge more harshly on those two aspects of their playing than they would otherwise. They're reflecting back on their first experience with the child. As teachers and administrators, we will consult one another for the best strategy for each child, and parents need to trust in us to make these decisions. While it might feel disappointing to be told no, it may in fact be a hidden blessing for later. So if you do receive a no, respond gracefully and attend the event happily to learn. This will go a long way, and you're modeling resilient behavior for your child. Okay, now let's say you receive good news and your child has been selected. You will see yourself get CC'd or communicated with eventually with all of the details for said event. Read this email thoroughly and take notes. Again, quick, clean communication with gratitude is always the way to go. You have your opportunity now and can put your energy into preparing your child for a learning opportunity. With a great learning opportunity in hand, you should put your best foot forward to be ultra-prepared and on time and cordial. Once you have scoured that initial informative email, gather some questions and form a polite, concise email which might ask things like, what time should you arrive, or parking, or dress code, if a family can attend, or about tickets you might need. Chances are there are more opportunities that could come your way through this one, So being respectful and showing up in great form is key. Basic etiquette will apply in overload here. You should stay, of course, for the entire event, not just your portion. 
you should not bring younger siblings unless they are quiet and able to contain themselves. You should be well-versed in what is expected from you in a masterclass so that you aren't caught off guard about making changes in front of an audience. Be prepared to stay up to a half hour afterwards so that your child can greet other members of the audience who might be patrons and so that you can pay your respects to the organization by giving them a personal thank you. Have the child do this, and if they are shy, work with them at home on being able to do this well. With Ava, we have had to work very much to get her to open up to new people and look them in the eye and smile. At first, this was very hard for her. But we did mock conversations at home, had fun with it, and now she looks forward to it. After the event, you should also send a follow-up email, short and sweet, thanking them. Let's take it one step further. Let's say that your kid plays something in the masterclass provided by said organization and does well, and then a few months later wins a concerto competition on the same piece, leading to a concert engagement with tickets. This is where you can easily write the same administrator and invite them, even comp them to the event, and include them on this special culmination of everybody's efforts, including them. Trust me when I say they will greatly appreciate this. Even if they cannot attend, they will remember you and your kid for this gesture. Consider doing this not just for that arts administrator, but also for your teacher, your collaborative pianist for that event, maybe your music teacher at school or your youth orchestra director. If you get comp tickets for an event where your child is playing a piece where many people contributed to your education, you should be offering them comp tickets so that they can enjoy and celebrate with you. This goes a long way. This is what networking is all about. I suggest to my studio parents that they also record every opportunity like a masterclass or a special performance with their child's age, the piece they performed, the pianist they were working with, the organization that offered it to you, the works. This isn't just for comp tickets. You will want to remember all of these things later. Here's why. Maybe a few years down the line, you see this same performing artist that led the masterclass performing somewhere else. This will give you an opportunity to say hello and mention this shared experience with them. Maybe they end up on a faculty for a school or music festival your child is applying to. This is now something you will be trying to remember so that you can mention it to them when you write them to schedule that trial lesson or request them as the teacher at the festival. You will need to jog their memory too, so any details you have on the event will help. These artists are sought after and they're in high demand everywhere, so sometimes that prior interaction will tip the scales in your favor. In my own experience, the teacher that I worked with at the Paris Conservatory, Gérard Poulet, was a teacher who led a masterclass at a music festival. When I worked with him, I knew that I wanted to study with him more. And when I heard his other students play, I knew it for sure. So I kept in touch with him and my parents helped me. At the time, we were sending recordings. Of course, everything was by mail. So it took quite a bit of effort to keep in touch with him in this way. But then when I was ready to consider moving, 
and possibly attending conservatory early. He knew exactly who I was, and he remembered our first experience together, too. I don't know whether he took the time to listen to everything that I sent him over those few years, but I imagine that when he was considering me moving to Paris to study with him, he may have touched on a few of those recordings, if not just to see how I was progressing as a young artist. I'm certain that those communications really helped me with my next steps. As a teacher in my studio, we had masterclass artists writing recommendation letters for us later for the students that they heard. I kept scrupulous notes on every event and used it to further their value to them later. Parents should do this too, and they should be letting their children watch. It's strategic and in keeping with how competitive the industry actually is. You will be thanking yourselves later if you keep track of all of these things so that you can help keep your contacts warm. So what is the takeaway so far from the scenarios that I've just described? Number one, ask your teacher for a preamble conversation to decide how to proceed and who should proceed to receive a desired opportunity. Once you have a solid and positive communication, follow up quickly. After the experience, send a quick thank you and include them in any follow-up opportunities by extending an invitation. And finally, keep notes on every event to use strategically later. Every musical opportunity can pave the way to another. Your communication style can make it more likely And if you do it smoothly, you might be at the front of their mind when another opportunity comes to their desk. Next, I'm going to share a short story which I see as a bit of an eye-opener for parents. I once had a student's mom get really adamant that their child be considered for a master class, even though they were younger than the age limit. This was not a master class that was happening inside of my studio, It was through another organization, a very well-known one in the area. I knew that this particular organization was very strict about their age limits from prior experience, and I told her so. She just didn't see the harm in asking again and felt, I think, that I was avoiding doing it for her. I knew from my prior situations with them that they would be annoyed, but at her insistence, I wrote on her behalf, and after a few exchanges, they relented. I was quite surprised, actually, that they gave in, and I suspect they did so in part because they knew I had other students who they might want to appear in master classes in the future. Fast forward a few weeks later, and this same parent who had wanted this so badly realized that that event in question was actually during a trip where they would be out of town. Now, I had to write them and explain this. To say they were annoyed is an understatement. How do I know? I didn't hear from them for another three years. I was literally cut off, along with the rest of my very deserving students, from all opportunities during this time. The thing is, I'm sure they had to have a meeting to consider waiving that age limit and get permission from their executive director, who I happen to know was at the helm of that age restriction to start with. This took time and effort from everyone. Then to have it fall through for something so flaky 
was just astonishing to them. It made them not want to work with me. They associated this with my studio. To repair this relationship, I had to go in person to an event and have a personal conversation with the administrator explaining my frustration and show them how terribly sorry I was for the trouble that it caused them. I knew as I spoke to them that indeed I had been cut off. Slowly, they started sending me things again. While I know that this parent was doing the best she could for her family, others were affected as well. In hindsight, I learned something as a teacher. I should have never okayed the decision to write them repeatedly about something I knew they felt very strongly about. My relationship with them was going to need to stand the test of time and far outlast the years spent with one studio family. While I must advocate for each student of mine, I also need to preserve the opportunities for future students. Let's talk now about how we need to write competitions when we're in need of clarification. As hard as they try, sometimes the application instructions do seem a little hazy. Well, first of all, read all of the application information well in advance so that you have plenty of time to communicate with them if something isn't clear. Nothing breaks our ability to communicate effectively more than feeling in a mad rush to meet a deadline. Nobody wants to pay an application fee or go through the throes of making videos and uploading things online if there's no point. Again, I advise asking the teacher first before writing the competition admin if you have a question. Because if you have a question, it is unlikely another student hasn't had the same one. If not that year, then maybe in years prior. Sometimes I have five parents asking me the same thing. If that happens, I will write on everyone's behalf. Generally, this is a great idea because it saves time for the administrator of the competition and it frankly gets everyone the answers they need quicker. They want to help me as the teacher because I contain the key to five potentially great competitors and their applications. To have a successful competition, you need people to enter, so they are likely to respond to me very quickly. It also clues in the competition that they may need to be a bit more specific about something if many are posing the same question. I know last year when Ava did a competition here in San Francisco, we were halfway ready to send in four pieces recorded before I realized that their application date would have her under the age limit. I was really kicking myself for not reading it more carefully months earlier. We were so busy adjusting to our life in California, I just didn't really have my act together yet. The thing was, by the final round, she would be within their age limit. So I asked her teacher first whether I should write them. How might they respond to this? He said they were experiencing a lot of changeover currently, so he wasn't really sure. But he advised me to go ahead and write them, specifying that we were hoping to compete based on the fact that if chosen for the finals, she would satisfy their age requirement. I did this using that wording, and everything worked out. As a teacher, I've had numerous occasions where a child or parent was unsure if they could compete on a certain piece within the parameters of the competition guidelines. 
And I was able to advocate for them and get them permission based on a previous student being allowed the same. If they had asked without me, I'm fairly sure they would have been refused. But with precedent in hand, the competition was encouraged to honor their decision from a prior year. Generally, when you are dealing with someone behind the email of a competition, you're not dealing with an actual judge, but not always. So if you do get a no to one of your requests, try and recover quickly and wish them a wonderful competition. You might not do it this year, but it wouldn't be unheard of for you to participate in that same competition in a future year. So being resilient like this is important, and it also models this for your child. They will hear no so much, and it needs to roll off their backs. Modeling this for them is more important than I can express in this podcast. Maybe it's a topic for another one. One opportunity lost is not the end of the world, and by the end of any given day, you can have another goal set for an even greater musical opportunity. Great musicians who have competed a lot and auditioned everywhere are incredibly fluid thinkers, and they also rally back very quickly from disappointments. I believe this happens over time and through experience. Here's another recent exchange that you can use as an example on how I had to communicate on Ava's behalf. Just last week, I was having a really hard time finding a collaborative pianist to play for Ava at a competition which happens to be right around the corner. Our regular pianist told me that he just wasn't free that day. Turns out I should have asked him weeks ago. When I asked for him to give me some recommendations, he suggested that I might write the competition directly and ask if they could make a referral based on applications already received. He advised that I do this in part because the date of that competition happens to be a date that he knows many of his other pianist friends are not available. I took this advice gladly, and not only did it save me tons of time, it also paid off. I would never have done so if he hadn't worked for them before. He knows the people there and how they operate. He was able to tell me that they were friendly, helpful, easy to work with, and he knew that this would not reflect badly on anyone and that they'd be happy to help. They were, in fact, very happy to help, and they were able to give me a few recommendations, one of whom we will be working with. After that worked out, I sent them a very quick thank you email for helping, because I know that Ava will get so much out of this competition, and I wished them a wonderful event. On the subject of competitions, let's talk about winner's recitals, too, while we're at it. Sometimes there are events after the competitions. Years ago, in my studio, one such event was held at the Kennedy Center. That year, I had more than a few who had placed, and they were ready to perform. The thing about big stages like this is that they are charging the competition organizers by the minute. So the person in charge had given very detailed instructions on how long a piece could be to play in the winner's recital. One of my parents was immediately put off by this and wondered if they might make an exception. She wrote, and they told her no. She then wrote back and asked if others' times were short the allowance, if those minutes could be donated to her child. That way, they might be able to play the piece they had planned. 
She was then told he didn't have to play at all if it was too difficult for her to figure out. She was understandably upset by this communication. This was a huge opportunity to play in such a great venue, so we figured it out together. But I would have never suggested she write asking for other children's minutes and was left shaking my head. Everyone wants the best for their child, but some rules are there for a reason. In her defense, arts management is a complicated thing, and renting halls and paying by the minute is not something I think she understood. But that should be even more reason to consult before communicating. What might seem like a simple thing to a parent will be obviously an impossibility to a musician, because we will see through these things from our experience having worked as performers. This experience is valuable and something parents should not hesitate to lean on. Not all competition administrators are so prickly. I will never forget when I was named a finalist in the NSO Young Soloist competition. It was my first competition ever, and I had no idea what to wear on a big stage. And my mother had no idea where to shop. We had dresses I used to wear for church, but this was held in the Kennedy Center Concert Hall, so a full-length gown was necessary. We were definitely out of our comfort zone there. She wrote the competition asking for exact dress code and said she knew she was out of her territory on this, but wanted to be absolutely sure she helped me the best she could. That lovely administrator, Helen May, gave her recommendations as to where she could take me to have a dress fitted to me so that I was dressed beautifully, and we never forgot it. We invited her to so many events after that and felt this really sincere connection with her for years to come. That one honest interaction bonded us to her, and I like to think that without her, I might not have won that night. Let's talk about youth orchestra auditions and scheduling. Over many years, I developed relationships with the youth orchestra directors back east, Often they would ask me at various events if I had any students they could look forward to hearing at auditions. It wasn't hard for me to notice their preferences in a certain kind of player or even in audition pieces. They also knew what worked for them and their orchestras for the higher seats. Over the years, it was possible for me to get certain exceptions made for age limits for a few special kids. Had their parents written by themselves, I'm positive they would have been declined. But because I had a good working relationship with the organization and I had precedent, I could easily advocate for them. Now, if they had written before me and had already received a refusal, it would have been harder for me to step in. So it's always easier if the teacher is the first point of contact when you have a question or a concern about an orchestra audition. When there were conflicts with seating or issues with attendance, I was happy to serve as a go-between and try and see everyone's point of view. Some parents might assume that playing ability should always earn a top seat, but personality is also a factor. A lead seat should go to a child who can exhibit leadership skills, and if in audition they aren't quick to show this, they will probably not be seated up front. By maintaining a respectful relationship with the youth orchestra directors, I've been able to serve the kids knowing what might be needed for the next set of auditions to facilitate a better outcome. If all of those communications were handled just by parents, 
they're not likely to get some of the honest responses I did. And ultimately, those more candid communications between, between myself and the directors were very valuable to their child's progress. One thing that came up with my parents quite a bit when it came to youth orchestra was the fear of absences and it affecting their standing in the orchestra. For absences, I also on occasion had to step in to advocate for a child, but mostly I advised a parent as to how to write and avoid losing their seat. Frequently, absences, seating, and scheduling are the main issues at hand past that initial audition process for youth orchestra parents. One thing I advise parents to do is to make sure that they are being upfront and clear about absences, and as early as possible. While no child wants to lose a seat for an unexcused absence, it isn't worth fabricating an excuse over. Often, they will see right through this. They've been doing this for many years. And then you will lose very needed trust in this relationship. I give the same advice about scheduling. If there are scheduling conflicts for events outside the regular rehearsal schedule and they involve other music institutions, for example, an extra rehearsal conflicting with a class or private lesson at your music school, try writing a brief email asking for flexibility and help and be upfront about why. You can't be in two places at once, and chances are, if your communication is earnest, someone will bend slightly and provide a way for you to mend that schedule. The other thing I mentioned to parents about these communications is that if your only communications with the youth orchestra or pre-college administrators are to ask for help, this is not ideal. Communicate with them and participate in a relationship of gratitude. They are far more likely to go out of their way to help you with something if you have a history with them that is not just about requests and concerns, but also about gratitude, sharing good news, offering to volunteer every now and then. These are relationships you are building, which will serve you and your whole family for years. They are able to help with scheduling puzzles every day, and you will be in good standing with them if you are communicating fluidly with them over the course of many situations. This goes a long way for everyone, and it is something your child can really learn from and use in their future career as a musician. I hope that this episode gave you a lot to think about regarding networking for your young artist. One of the reasons that I started this podcast is because I firmly believe there are many, many entities that we need to deal with effectively to raise young artists well. It's important for parents to understand that even with no background in music, we can all still learn how to communicate and network better so that we're modeling these behaviors for our children for the future. Certainly, without these skills well in hand, we aren't preparing them for future careers that are becoming more and more competitive by the day. I'm confident that when parents understand the value in learning these skills, they will work harder with their teachers and other educators in their child's life, and that this in turn will allow a young artist to feel the support that they deserve as they work and train to reach their dreams. Stay tuned for our next episode entitled Mindset and Disposition. I will be detailing my thoughts on how these two things can affect a child's ability to progress and thrive in music. For this episode, 
I will definitely be wearing many hats because I use these tools both as a violinist and a teacher, but also as a parent and mentor of children in the arts. If you are a frequent visitor to our Instagram page, you know that we are big supporters of growth mindset and that I actively prioritize Ava's mindset in our work together. As this has been so key to her happiness and our work together, I'm really looking forward to sharing some of how I think others can apply these ideas to their work with more young musicians. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect.